Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where this week we're niching down to a single person thinking about their work and unpacking the rest. And that's the perfect way to bring on Alex Wilhelm, who's not the subject of the episode. Alex, you're just the co-host with me. Hello. Yeah, I think if we interview me, it'd be the most boring show of all time. Are you kidding? That's most of shows are interviewing each other. I think that it's fantastic. <laughs> this is why podcasts have a bad reputation is because I think they just all talk to one another. But no, we haven't done a lot of interviews on the show since the pandemic started. We've been out of our studio, but we have someone today that we're frankly very excited about. Yeah. So this is a return guest. It's Sarah Goa, the founder of Conviction, which is a VC firm that she announced last week all about software 3.0. It closed 101 million. I mean, it checks off all the boxes of what equity is interested in. But the conversation, which we just wrapped up, I think made me more present than I have been in a while when interviewing people, because I mean, it ranged everything from why AI sensationalism sucks to, you know, bobcats in her backyard, eyeing her down uh, during the interview. Yeah, we, we did get into wildlife. That was not where I expected this conversation to go. We also got to talk about SaaS and building a new venture capital firm, the LP market. We went a little bit long, but frankly, I'm not even going to apologize for that because it was worth it. And we're going to do more of this. So just given the fact that we had an absolute blast, you can blame Sarah if you didn't want to hear more VC interviews, but now we're going to do more of them. <laughs> yes. So I'll, we'll throw that in a second. And the last pitch I'll make is I'm someone who kind of has had my eyes glaze over with seeing the phrase AI pop up in headlines and in stories over the past few years. And so we kind of talk about that too, which is like the numbness. And, and I think, as I said already, the hype around AI, and she makes a good argument for why now is the time to be paying attention to it. So give it a chance if you're not into AI. If you are into AI, I mean, we're all going to nerd out together. So let's jump to that interview now. So Sarah, welcome back to the show. It's been almost three years to the day since you've been on Equity, which is wild to me. Thanks for having me. A lot has happened. Good to see you guys. <laughs> a lot has happened. Yeah, just a global <laughs> pandemic, a couple of recessions, presidential election, what, three different crypto booms and busts? Like it's been, three years is, is like a thousand years, I think. Yes. In startup and dog years, it's it's a lifetime. It's kind of funny how the headline for the last time, Sarah, you were on the episode still works for you. It was Greylock GP. I guess that doesn't work. <laughs> you're, you're as bullish on SaaS as ever was kind of your take then. And I feel like we get now to check in on you with this new firm, this new fund and what's changed. So I really wanted to start there with the news, which is you announced conviction. And the thing about your announcement that stood out to me other than this massive new fund, which is 101 million, sorry, is that it was a very distinct choice to name the firm conviction instead of optionality, some would say. So tell us, tell us about that before we get into what you're focusing on. Yeah. So I actually have Alex Imbiricos, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Remotion, uh, where I'm on the board to thank for the name. There was initially another name, which is funny, but we uh, ran into some conflict issues there. But Conviction, I feel really strongly about because it has a number of sort of principles I'd aspire to as just generally an investor and then also in the thesis of the fund itself, right? I feel like if you just think about the founder experience Having somebody believe in you is a really big deal. You know, it's a huge part of the value prop besides like everyone's money is green and advice and support and network and all of that. I think it's sometimes undervalued just having somebody who really understands what a company is doing and then really believes in it. 
um, because it can take a long time if you're an early stage investor. And I, I fundamentally am. So I, I think that piece is just of importance to me. It means like you make fast decisions, you stand by them, and that that belief is actually really useful. And it's something that founders need and that investors need. On the other hand, like a different piece is just like thinking about what's happening in the tech landscape and the customer. And as you said, I think one of the things that holds venture firms back from like being differentiated, looking differentiated, sounding any different, like a founder of an interesting email company that you guys would know said to me at one point in his fundraising process, he's like, I just can't tell. Like all the VC firms, they sound the same. Like you have to so explain. So we're not alone. Yeah. yeah you have to explain. That. <laughs> you have to explain like something about it to me that is different. And like, yeah. that's just stuck with me for many years. And I think what embarking upon the new journey, I was like, all right, well, like, well, we're really going to lean into that, into making the firm the best possible choice for a certain segment of entrepreneurs. It's not going to be growth stage entrepreneurs. It's not going to be entrepreneurs where their core thing is not software. And it's not going to be entrepreneurs who like don't think intelligence is eventually important to their companies, right? And if we're sort of focused in that, then you can you can build the whole firm around it. And I think like that will be different. When I heard the name Conviction, one, the first thing that came to mind was investors saying, you know, oh, in that deal, I couldn't get to Conviction. And so to me, it's always been this threshold that investors need to hit to kind of go in on a deal. But then I was thinking more about the mechanics of it, because when I think of having lots of Conviction, I'm thinking about making fewer bets, fewer investments, and staying with a company longer and perhaps keeping up my percentage uh, longer than a fund of your size might on average. So I- I'm curious, are you going to invest in fewer companies with more money, i.e. with more conviction, or does the name not actually impact the model? I think it does impact the model in the first piece that you described, right? I don't expect that we'll do like very late stage rounds, even in our own companies, but I think it'll be a very concentrated portfolio, right? I expect to mostly be doing sort of seed and series A investing and I think it will look like a sort of venture classic portfolio in that you're not doing 50 investments, right? You're not doing 100K, 200K angel checks. One, because I've actually been experiencing that for the last few months. And it's it's just not the most interesting thing to me. You don't know the company that well. You don't have that much skin in the game. You don't get the phone call from the company in terms of the help they need and the advice they need. And like, I'd rather take what I consider to be like real venture bets. So I, I guess that is a higher conviction strategy. I love it. I mean, it's kind of a perfect segue to taking us back into your decision to leave Greylock after almost a decade there. I know everyone, including our listeners, are curious what really triggered you to leave. And, you know, it was part of it wanting to make higher conviction bets. Yeah, I'd start with like, I don't think you, I wouldn't stay any place for 10 years if I didn't think it was amazing, right? And so like the people, the investors, operators at Greylock, they're amazing people. I joined when I was 23 and like they're friends. I owe a huge debt to them. I really grew up as an investor in the firm and then eventually I hired and helped a lot of people and I hope I contributed in important ways. We were talking about three years being like, long time horizon in Silicon Valley, like a yeah. decade is a lifetime. Um, now it's kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive to stay at a place for more than three years, unless you're in venture. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, the interesting thing about venture as a time scale is like often the success cases, people stay with the firm like forever, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you know, not that they're going to kill you, but like, it's kind of like the mob, right? The success case is like, you're part of the family forever. You're like bound. Uh, Yeah. And I'd say like, I've never really been able to let go of my identity as an entrepreneur. Like my 
parents are entrepreneurs. Like I expected to, when I joined and Greylock explicitly expected that I'd be there for a year, maybe two, and then maybe start a company. And so I ended up perhaps overstaying that by nine years. And it wasn't so much one trigger as sort of the realization that I had confidence in my own investing, confidence in what was happening in the technology landscape, and then lots of rationalization and macroeconomic pain in existing companies aside, I think it's a really good time to start an early stage vintage. And so like that sort of confluence of factors was more the opportunity is just too big, right? The AI revolution, I think, is only going to happen once. You know, when we last spoke, I consider it sort of the greatest luck like I was not the person to discover SaaS, right? I think I learned a few things about what made great companies uniquely good yeah. in that. But I kind of caught the shift to cloud midstream when I joined Greylock in 2013. And I got to learn something from like really pioneering SaaS companies, right? Workday, Figma, Quip, Dropbox, et cetera, Okta, and then a bunch of cloud infrastructure and security companies. But you know, we're not in inning two. Like we could argue, are we in inning seven or inning nine of the cloud transition? And if you're an early stage investor, like you definitely don't want to be investing in inning nine in general. I'm all ears to important new SaaS companies that just figure out a better workflow or an underserved customer. But it is a red ocean out there now, right? And the primary clouds have been mostly transitioned and it's going to get more expensive to go compete. And so like the thing that, the thing that I really think I see now is that you have this like fundamental technology shift and like the confluence of data collection, better data infrastructure, which has yeah. been happening for like five, 10 years now to use the, the term from the, from the academic paper, the unreasonable effectiveness of deep learning overall, and then like specific algorithms, and then just being on the right side of growing compute capacity and like deflationary compute, cheaper and cheaper compute. I think that we're really early in a period of both value creation and value harvest for more intelligence and software, like software 3.0. So what a time to be alive. Like you got to go after it. <laughs> no, I'm totally here for that. And I want to get into all of that in just a second, but I want to go back to the fund itself. 101 million, it came together very quickly. And you mentioned how it's a great time to build an early stage portfolio of vintage. And I actually very much agree with you. But what we have seen in the last 12 months has been a deceleration in the pace at which certain venture rounds have been done. And to me, if everyone else is pulling back and prices are getting cheaper and you still believe in the long-term venture model, why wouldn't everyone be leaning into this moment? And so I, I'm kind of curious, you know, how you manage to raise the fund so quickly. Do LPs agree with you? And then why are some VCs pulling back when things are suddenly cheaper than they were a year ago? Like, it, it's such a strange, weird moment to be watching the venture capital space more generally. Yeah. One thing that was useful to remind myself of is like, my firm is the most important thing in the world to me, like, you know, barring friends and family, but I'm not the center of anybody else's universe. I'm a tiny drop in the, you know, tens of billions of dollar endowment at whatever large university. And you say that I raised the fund quickly. I will tell you that any entrepreneur, like, you know, somebody starting a fund or a company is like, well, that was not even close to fast enough. <laughs> um, 10 weeks was not fast enough? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, and I, I respect this, LPs work on a different timescale because they're making, you know, decade-long decisions, but it just means sure. that I think every every entrepreneur is always impatient, even if they're building important relationships. So, like, felt long. Maybe your first <laughs> question 
I'd say, like, there's a lot to the point of not being at the center of anybody else's universe. There's a lot going on for your average, like, sophisticated institutional LP right now, right? They're dealing with the macro. So the value of their public portfolio is going down. Their existing relationships in venture are asking for more money. So every major venture fund, I think barring benchmark, got much bigger over the last five years and the last couple of years in particular. And so I think the combination of the denominator is smaller because the markets are where they are. And then, you know, you can think of these LPs as having, often they have a target allocation for venture and private equity. And venture did really, really well, at least on paper, and some real outcomes over the last few years. So as a bucket, it just grew because the asset class did well. And they raised more money, so the bucket grew even more. And then the sort of experience that I think the LPs have now is they're like, ah, we have too much venture, right? right. And then we don't have... For a lot of them, they're like, ah, and we don't know exactly like how much real venture we have because we have these funds that are actually mostly growth funds by amount of deployment. And then we have these hedge funds who are actually also venture funds and that we hold a lot of the same companies across all of these at all these different price points. So I think that's a complicated landscape to go navigate and figure out like, what do you actually want to do about portfolio allocation? And they're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? They're like, all right, we're expecting markdowns especially at the growth stage. We're expecting higher failure rates in venture portfolios because there are companies that have been funded that maybe shouldn't have been funded over the last year or two. And like, we're just waiting for that. So I think some of the most sort of most self-reflective LPs would also say we were perhaps a little aggressive in 2020 and 2021 in terms of backing new and existing venture funds. And so I think there's some self-correction like you'll see in the venture market now. So it's been really useful for me to go learn more about the LP perspective. But the good thing about just being a drop in the bucket for very large institutions is that if somebody thinks that you have a good strategy and they're like, despite everything that's happening over here, I see the secular opportunity, they can invest anyway. So I feel very lucky to be working with the the LPs I am, and um, a lot of people are still quite long-term oriented, and they just can ride it out and make make the bets they want to anyway. Yeah, and I don't know that much about what other people's LP basis look like, but perhaps a little bit untraditionally, like I'm a significant investor in my own fund, and then I have like 50 founders, CEOs, operators of companies that I admire, and I think it's also a mix of types of capital. I also think like the caliber of new firms and funds we're seeing is getting higher and higher or bigger and bigger. The kind of boom of rolling funds in 2021, even though to me they were really exciting because there was this opportunity of democratizing venture, you didn't see the same level of someone who had spent honestly a decade at Greylock or had been in the game for so long, then raising a fund. It was a lot of people who were maybe more in the venture tourist bucket starting their first funds, which is fine. But I think it's a different kind of yes from an LP side. And then one thing I've been tracking too, just this morning, I wrote about Next Few Ventures hiring a former Uncork Capital partner, Stephanie Palmieri. Stephanie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw that. I saw Terry Burns leaving GV. We saw Maria Salamanca leaving Unshackled for Ulu Ventures. And I feel like there's all these changes happening. And we're seeing some people take the, let's join a firm at a partnership level. Let's start from scratch. And I don't think I have a generalization to make yet, but it is a little bit more active in terms of like the prominent female partners I've been seeing making moves recently, which is kind of exciting to me. Yeah, I guess they feel they need to be entrepreneurs. I think a lot of it is the sort of circle of life and venture that traditionally happens. Yeah. Well, I think also to me, 
there has been this softening of the term partner over the years that like, I imagine some people have told me this idea of like, in order to really get your voice heard, you need to leave and start your own thing, which is not my ideal route. And I don't think that's always the case, but it was an interesting conversation I've had, which is like, can you only make a difference in venture if you're betting on yourself, um, especially if you're joining a firm that maybe doesn't have an equal partnership or something like that? I think the answer is yes. I mean, to a large degree, I know Sarah's probably not going to jump in and say, well, my economics are much better now and I like money, (laughs) but I mean, that is part of of the game. Who who wants to be a, a lesser partner? But I think, you know, this is even true in journalism. If you want to move up the editorial ladder, often they're frozen. And so often people jump to a different place where there is an opening and venture is very much the same and the cycles are long. I think the fact that so many female partners that we track, Natasha, have moved recently is interesting, but without a unifying thread between them, I don't think we can say it's predictive in any No. At least not yet. But we're searching for it. If you know the thread that ties all it together, email us, please, because we'd love to know more about that. (laughs) Speaking of threads and just getting into some themes, Conviction is going to be betting a lot on AI. And I thought it would be fun to read through some recent AI headlines and see, Sarah, if that matches up with your vision of the AI you're interested in or if this is the sensationalized AI. So, oh, amazing. I'm, I'm very out of date on the headline stuff. So this, this is going to be just educational for me. I mean, so some recent headlines are AI app could diagnose illnesses based on speech. Why Silicon Valley is so excited about awkward drawings done by artificial intelligence. From Forbes, we have artificial intelligence is dangerous for disabled people at work, four takeaways for developers and buyers. And then from Slate, we have the real threat from artificial intelligence isn't super intelligence, it's gullible. And so it's a lot of like, I think, headlines about trade-offs and about these niche use cases. I'm curious if that's where your interest is or if it's in a different tension altogether. Yeah, I hesitate to comment because I just haven't read the uh, story. So I'm like, I could be like way off base in terms of what they're actually talking about. You know, when you say is something sensationalist, I have a really strong allergic reaction to aggressive AI marketing, actually, because I think there's been... A long period, five plus years of snake oil salesmanship around AI as a solve to all customer problems and like... Give us trust issues. Yeah, there, there are trust issues or like it's just, uh, you know, people overpromising and underdelivering, right? Like there's a lot of engineering work and like a lot of these things that there are a lot of product hypotheses where you don't know how well something will work until you actually work with the data in a customer environment. I just have a very healthy respect for that and customers, like smart customers are savvy to it. But I think you can broadly take a... I hope this isn't a, well, I definitely know one part of this answer isn't boring, but I hope it's not a boring answer to you guys. I think uh, you're actually interested in broadly like SaaS, so I guess not. I think you can take a very clear-eyed view to the landscape and say like what's valuable to a customer. I think there's one way to like go sort of bottoms up and be like modality by modality, right? Like we can classify things, we can generate code, we can do math, we can generate images, et cetera. Or the way, and like, I think that's an interesting lens. I think the, the way I tend to look at the world is to be interested in a set of like problem domains that I know well, because I know the customer well. And think about like the way the customer thinks about it. So like nails, not hammers first, right? So you will see me invest in security, infrastructure, developer tools, productivity applications, creative apps, generally enterprise like sort of relational database applications that keep records and stuff. Verticals where I think the vertical is large, interesting, the data is affected by this. So I think CompBio is an obvious area commerce applications like and so you know the reason I think software 3.0 is like really apt term is like I'm just naming important categories of software that I know well but I fail to see a future where like all of those given the advances in compute and data and algorithms don't get more intelligent 
And so my view is more like, I think that there are going to be completely novel applications of AI that don't fit well into the existing categories. Like, you know, visual generation is not an existing software category. Autonomy is not a software category that exists without AI. Right. So like, I think there are going to be like net new application categories and then like all the budget and problems that people already have. And some of those I know better than others. Right. I really like technical audiences. I like security and infra. I feel like I know something about HR and finance at this point, but I'm more following the customer than anything else. Okay. So thinking about this broadly, any place where there is a lot of data that is sector or category specific is a candidate, therefore, for software 3.0 because given the amount of information we have, we can effectively learn from it using ML, AI, whatever, and then feed that back into the product category. This still sounds siloed to me, and it doesn't sound like you're trying to make bets on anything that's a generalized intelligence. So it's more like category or niche-specific AI that can be applied to in-market software solutions. Yeah. So I'd say I've always, maybe it's like I've been an investor too long. I've always had this weird attribute of being able to maintain like two compartmentalized points of view on something. So in in this example, my nerd brain, I think, allows me to be like incredibly excited about increasingly general capable models and be an authentic participant in like the research community in that way. And like, I won't say, would that be valuable? Yes. Is it a very like specific shape of investment to go fund a research lab? Yes, right? My commercial brain rules my investing. I'm the largest investor in my own fund. I feel a massive sense of responsibility to the institutional investors and friends and founders who backed me. Um, This is my reputation. So I'm not going to fund research for the sake of my own curiosity. And like, I think like we are going to do extremely well on a returns basis, mostly on the basis of applications. And that value, as you said, is kind of like all around us. To be clear, not not trying to be rude, just trying to make sure that I'm segmenting this correctly. No, not at all. Yeah. As we see... AI models become more general, are we going to see them begin to blend into one another from related segments? Like if you're doing like commerce versus fintech and you're building AI tooling for those, do they begin to kind of merge and become maybe not more generalized, but just a bit broader? And then does that lead to more interesting stuff down there? I'm trying to see like, what's the next thing that's going to come after these application or niche specific AI tools? I think some of these niches are really, really large. But, you know, going down that thread, I think a researcher interested in general intelligence in this area would say, like, the applications that are most exciting are those that allow us to collect feedback data in a certain form that allow us to better train a general model. And I guess from a commercial perspective, like, I think that's true, of course. You know, those are an interesting set of applications. But My friend Andrew Ng has a term that I think is really good, which he describes as like the last mile of engineering around AI, which is like the last mile suggests you're like running a marathon and there's like 20 miles of like something else or there's 20 miles of the model and like one mile of sort of engineering to get a product to work in the context of the customer. I think the ratio is more like the other way, right? So one way of imagining the future is like, you know, you sort of plug a model into all these existing software businesses and like you're done, right? And that actually doesn't leave a ton of opportunity for new startups. I think in practice, this is much harder than it seems, right? You actually need to change product experiences to leverage the data and the machine learning. And so I think the 
I think the idea that like maybe one thing you were kind of implying, Alex, is that there would be like one super app someday because there's like one model that gets smarter from all of these different use cases. I think we're pretty far away from that just in terms of like the deployability and the product that needs to be built around these models to make them useful. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping that things that were nearby would merge and then merges would merge and we'd end up with something <laughs> that Everything actually helps. I just, <laughs> I run into a lot of friction in my, in my work life. Things that the computer tries to do based on a set of rules it has that don't match up with my workflow. And I'm always sitting here like, I've told you now four times in a row, iOS, that I meant to type that word and you keep changing it back because you don't care about me and you're stupid. And it drives me nuts. And so I think that AI, once it makes maybe a couple more generational leaps, is going to be fantastic and it'll be in my lifetime. I'm just very impatient to get tooling improved so that way computers are things that are just a lot more than they can be today. But I want to shut up. No, I just to add on, I think like for so long we've been hoping for and waiting for things. And I feel like, Sarah, there's something you know that we don't about why there should be renewed energy around AI and why sensationalism didn't win in this case. And so I'm curious if, I guess, as you're talking to startups, like how have things changed? Like, what is making you want to, in some ways, return to something that I think had a lot more hype a few years ago? Yeah. So I had... I think somebody declare over the Twitterverse that I was jumping on like the either an old hype trend or a new hype trend. And I'm like, yes, I think if you look at the public speaking and the investing that I did in 2015 in bots and 2017 at Saster and 2018 at AI Frontiers and 2019 at Forbes, like clearly just arriving to the party. But, you know, what's <laughs> funny, what's funny about this period is funny to me is, as you said, like, there was another wave of people expecting a lot more from AI. And I think timing is pretty important here. Like, if you remember the messaging bots craze around, like, you know, Facebook Messenger platform, the oh Alexa release, like, those are really interesting surfaces in the home everywhere now. People do use these voice interfaces. But my timing was just off then. We really didn't have these widespread NLP capabilities that could be good consumer experiences. But, you know, as we were like beginning to talk about, we're on some really good curves, right? The deep learning revolution from a core algorithm perspective, like did not happen until like 2012 or so spreading slowly across like some large internet companies and academia. And then the Transformers paper at the end of 2017 has been a huge breakthrough. So I, I think you have like algorithmic advances, you have cheaper compute, you have a huge amount more talent that is actually like really trained in machine learning in combined with like there's it's just much easier, right? You have frameworks today like PyTorch. You have lots of open source models increasingly with like the checkpoints available to the community. There's a lot of excitement around stable diffusion, which is a recent release of sort of an image gen think like the open source version of Dolly 2, right? And so I think there are ingredients there where I'm seeing model performance that is valuable in a way okay. that was not true like five plus years ago. Yeah. I want to throw in an example and I, I can't pull up my notes from this call. So I'm going to describe this from memory and therefore butcher it. So I'll stay general. I was <laughs> talking to DeepGram and the way they went about building their speech recognition model wasn't to start with a set of rules and then clarify them. It was instead to build something that could, I think, kind of like more generally listen and learn and then go up from there. And to me, that was the kind of bottoms up approach that made me very excited about the ability to build more stuff in the AI world today that is more seeming like magic to us versus a rules tree, essentially, which 
we're all very tired of. And so I'm hoping that the optimism Sarah, that you have now works out. I mean, one, for the sake of your returns, but also two, just for the sake of the quality of life that we have in these digital worlds that we now live in literally all the time. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to end with magic and how that squares up with this vibe of wanting more discipline in the market. So last time you were on equity, Sarah, you kind of talked about the idea that the press and entrepreneurs and tech at large really hypes up these high valuations. And you wish that there was more awareness about the company that got to a capital efficient spot. And we should celebrate that too. And I feel like we're there now, but I'm curious on like capital efficiency and kind of the sharps that you're now interested in. How often do you see those two things in the same sentence? Well, you want growth and capital efficiency, right? I think the two <laughs> legs of the like venture backable company stool, like and, and something that's just important enough to work on. You know, I think that the vast majority of companies, like startup companies today are just less robust than they were five years ago because they have had so much capital along the way. It's counterintuitive, but like, you know, you see more companies are burning cash when they go public. Like they're not as profitable. And cash has, I did not wish for this macroeconomic environment, but- <laughs> Yes, to be clear, it's not Sarah's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's not everybody. It's not my fault. I, I said like, Wait, it would be better. Wait, it's your fault? <laughs> we know who to blame. Uh, her and Elon Musk. Let's just blame both no, of them. No, we, we're not saying those two words on the show today. <laughs> that was the promise. <laughs> Natasha, Alex. <laughs> but if you have this situation where cash is just fundamentally more expensive, then yes, like capital efficiency is going to be more valuable. And I think like, I don't remember if I said this when I was on equity before, but a deep belief for me is like, I think an unhealthy habit of the last few years has been to just think about like venture fundraising as this like unlimited pool of like the milestones that you need to reach to keep the company going. But venture capitalists are not the final authority. Eventually, companies are accountable to the public markets and their own profitability. Impressively, like, there are a lot of private companies who have a huge hoard of cash right now, and yet you can burn through $50, $100, 200000000 million in cash as a private company. It's actually not that hard if you're overhiring and overpaying a lot of very expensive tech employees. And if you're public or soon to be public, you'll get the feedback that you need to become a more profitable organization quickly, right? But these companies with a big cash hoard, they're often ending in a standoff with their boards. Like they don't feel the pressure to be leaner while they're wealthy, and eventually they'll face the consequences. And if I think about my friends who, I was not a founder in the 99-2000 period, but if I think about my friends who were, like, they have no confusion about, like, the importance of capital efficiency, right? And so I think you are, the current pain aside, going to get a generation of entrepreneurs that values yeah. capital efficiency deeply, not because some venture capitalist or Natasha or Alex told them to, right, but because they have experienced that, you know, I'm on a mission to build this amazing product for my customers. And then, you know, the outcome is the company is a profitable cash machine. And like the less money I spend to get there, the better. That just like wasn't in sort of the general culture of Silicon Valley over the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It was really easy to avoid. Are you actively investing out of this fund currently? I am. I okay. am. Call me, founders. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the listener questions was that. And then also, what are the three top metrics you're looking for in seed stage companies right now that kind of fits into what you just said with this kind of different vibe of the market? So yes, I am investing. A lot of people say there's no data for a seed stage company. I think it is True that there are often no metrics, but there's a lot of soft data. And I'm like a vacuum cleaner for data when I'm thinking about a new company, right? I like to have a lot of input and then 
you know, go sleep on it, go do the work, make a decision. What I look for is not, this is not the answer I think this person, this founder is looking for, but my process is really, if I already know something about an area, then I'm looking for like what I don't understand. The unknown unknowns, opinions on the person, opinions on the market from somebody who's got more depth than I do. I take people to meetings, actually. Like I might have, you know, I meet Natasha And I'm like, okay, I think like she has these core entrepreneurial traits. I really like these things about her. Like clearly there's some areas where she doesn't have experience, needs to learn, et cetera. You know, is my instinct right? A recent angel investment I made just before the fund closed, I brought my friend Dylan Field to the demo because he knew the founder too. It's an area of shared interest for us. And then I introduced like the team to the founder CEOs of the dominant prior generation company. And then also to their like biggest like potential partners, friends, yeah. ecosystem. I was gonna say like, do they love it or hate it? <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I asked, right? Okay. And it's like, I'm only making those introductions where there's potential for value for the yeah. startup, right? I mean, it's a badass strategy. <laughs> and these people are technical folks. So their biggest like personally identified gap tends to be like how to package and distribute the product. And so I also introduced them to some smart marketing and salespeople from like let's say like this data infra area. And I called customers and explained the product. So none of these are metrics, but like that's a lot of like all of the reactions are really important data for me and really important data. There's a bobcat outside my house. Oh my God. Um, uh, Really important data. (laughs) Pandemic 2021. (laughs) Yes. Really important data. I think also like feedback for the entrepreneur. I'm going to get a video of this and like you guys could use it for your social media. Please. But, (laughs) But like to this founder's question, like, I think like if you imagine that as a process, like it's actually just trying to understand the question, you know, at the seed stage, it's often an idea or a prototype, right? And the higher fidelity, the prototype that you communicate, the idea you communicate, the better data you get back. But I'm not necessarily looking for metrics. Yeah. I know we have to go in a second, but I want to squeeze in one more. I want to go back to the cash efficiency versus growth question, because you said the correct thing, which is I want both. And obviously, every investor wants a company that's cash flow positive and growing at 400% a year. Huzzah. Who would not write that check? But if you are a founder and you are staring down your current burn rate and you're thinking about growth and you want to make sure that you're making intelligent choices for your company and your investors and your employees and so forth, how much growth should you be willing to give up if you can make great gains in efficiency? And I'm curious about kind of the ratio there or the tension thereof, because I don't know if there's a single answer, but there must be a a bit of generalized advice that people could abide by. Yeah, maybe two things. And because if you ask for generalized advice, it will come off as a cliche. But one is like, you want to become a better company, not just a bigger one. Like one year of less than extreme growth in a market that has a lot of potential where you're trying to get more efficient is not going to kill the company, right? I think that... Where I would always encourage people to go invest, you know, assuming they have the resources, is where their growth is asymmetric to other people's, right? If you're just paying people to make quota at the rate that your competitors are, or you're paying for SEM in the way that your competitors are, like, that competitive market is actually... um, not an efficient path to growth. And and so I think that's been an unhealthy habit of the last few years. But if you are investing in a way that is asymmetric and you can extend, like, I care much more about market leadership Mm -hmm. than about absolute growth numbers in any given year. That being said, like, if you can't make a low multiple of growth or you don't understand why you're not reaching a low multiple of growth when you're 
early in the company's life cycle? That's an important question to answer, right? Is the market too small? Is the product not compelling? Are you not the dominant product in that category? Like, do you just need to figure out how to distribute the message better? You know, this tension comes up all the time, Alex, of like, well, like, we're in a competitive market and our competitors are spending X and we want to be the market leader. Like, I think everybody has now accepted that the game cannot be to outspend inefficiently your competitors. That won't help you win, right? So the question is just like, what can we do to be more creative or more guerrilla? Yeah, get scrappier. I like that. Sarah, this is why you are a repeat, maybe the most often guest we've ever had on the show. This was twice. awesome. You've been, Amazing. I think, is it three times? No, I thought it was three. I think- Iris Choi has been on more times. I'm sorry, sorry. You'll have to come back and try to give her a run for her money. Damn it. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll have you back on when you um, are ready to announce your first slew of investments. Thank you for your time. Tell people where they can find you and your Bobcat online. <laughs> we don't really have a website yet, but you can find me uh, Sarah at conviction.com and I'm on the internet. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. And best way to pitch you, are you a DM person, Twitter person, LinkedIn DMs person? Please say no. (laughs) I'm an email person. I check my DMs. It's a lot of channels. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And that is the show. We will be back on Friday with news from this already crazy week. You can follow Equity on Twitter at EquityPod. Me on Twitter at NMask underscore the ugliest Twitter handle. And Alex, I'll let you throw your amazing Twitter handle. Uh, My Twitter handle is at underscore Alex underscore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in solidarity it's, with my friend Natasha, who has a lovely Twitter handle and a great Twitter following and a great Twitter account. Uh, she just joined <laughs> a little bit late. But Natasha, just before we let everyone go, don't forget, if you are coming to Disrupt next week, we are going to be kicking off the show on the TechCrunch Plus stage. The equity team is going to be doing a live taping, our first time ever at Disrupt on one of the main stages. And there's going to be pastries. I think there's going to be bagels. So come hang out with us, That's throw food at us. Please don't do that. Drink <laughs> coffee, have a good time. And uh, we're going to kick off the main stage. It's going to be, oh my I, God. I'm terrified slash excited slash terrified slash excited slash terrified. Yeah, exactly. And if Alex at Alex hits 100,000 followers before our live show, he's going to do a backflip during the show. So you heard it here first. It's true. This is why you wait till the end. It's also, also <laughs> after I fail to backflip and break my neck, I won't have to host anymore. And I'm very nervous about that because it's not my natural state of affairs. So follow me on Twitter. So that way I die. Thank you. <laughs> See everyone else later this week. <laughs> Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.